top is open and venting, it will slowly uh, cool down. Cool. Cool. Yeah, actually, if my coffee cooled down a certain point, then it'd be nice if it stayed right there for hours. Yeah, yeah. that's great. So, so yes, to your point, Second Corinthians three is one of my favorite passages um, because I'm still taken by uh, Greg Upham's comment. I think last year, as we went through the Torah cycle. When we got to Deuteronomy 10, and it talked about God circumcising your heart, he stopped everybody and said, that's the new covenant. That's it right there. You need to make sure you understand that. And we're all like, mm-hmm. you know. Then you get to Deuteronomy 30, and it says it again, which we just read recently. Right. Was that like last week or something like that? And uh, yeah, God's going to circumcise your heart. Actually, Deuteronomy 10, it says you need to circumcise your heart. How do you do that? And then in Deuteronomy 30, God will circumcise your heart. Well, that's exactly what Paul goes through in 2 Corinthians 3. And he brings it home. And your seed. I'm sorry? And your seed. Yeah, which is scary if you think about it. Right. And may, you know, maybe the whole Presbyterian uh, covenant household thing has some merit. I don't know. Um, but anyway, uh, I thought it was a good class. And uh, we've got some good feedback. And like I said, 13 people are listening online. And uh, highest so far. Um, but what do we have? Just you two? Was us three. Three. It's yeah. just three of you, right? No. Josh, Joshua. You were driving. Joshua. Yeah, Joshua. That's right. Yeah, Joshua. Yeah. Alex and myself. Yeah. So um, I'll consider it a compliment. You confused us. <laughs> <laughs> so Richard get uh, get his mouth uh, uh, up, up a little bit. Yeah, with uh, his little either tongue tie or lip tie or something or other. So uh, Joshua is consoling his son right now. Praise God that he has a son to console. That is just the coolest thing. And, and upsetting uh, him every three hours on, on schedule. Yeah. So, um, okay. I just want to, to recap. Second Corinthians 3, Paul is making it clear that he's being dinged about his... Uh, authority to teach and he's making it clear that he actually did better than Moses did Moses had a message that message was the Torah about Messiah and they didn't get it they rebelled against it over and over and over again and they died in the wilderness whereas Paul's message is the same message and people are becoming saved having a place in the world to come and I think 2 Corinthians 3, you've got your best exposition about it doesn't matter who your dad is. It it doesn't matter what you've done. It matters what God has done to you and you believing it. Period. We're done. So uh, faith does it. And uh, good stuff. So if you'll recall uh, the little map thing we did, Paul started in Antioch, went down to Jerusalem, and then comes back up to Antioch and starts going through Galatia, Phrygia, has a little, what do you call it, vision of the guy from Macedonia. Come on over here. Come on over here. So he crosses the water and goes over to Macedonia, uh, Thessalonica, Philippi, those places. And then he goes down the peninsula of Greece, and that's where he ends up in Corinth. Stops in Athens for a little bit, didn't go too well, ends up in Corinth, spends some time there. Comes back, stops at Ephesus, and goes back to Jerusalem and then back up to Antioch. It's the first one. Second one, he 
pretty much wants to visit everybody again and ends up down in Corinth and spends three months there. While he's there is when he wrote to the Romans. And that's what we're going to read about and uh, talk about tonight. So uh, if you'll open your Bibles to uh, Acts chapter 20, we'll pick up where we pretty much where we left off in Acts. Just in, in case you're not keeping score, there's only eight chapters in um, 28 chapters in Acts. We're already on Acts chapter 20. We've been through several letters from Paul. We're going to go through Romans now, and we're going to do that at a, at a pretty cl strong clip. If, if he's not talking about Hanukkah and how to live after you've been saved, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on how to be saved or why you aren't saved or why you're a sinner and stuff like that. So we're going to blister through it. But if you're not really familiar with how Romans is broken down, my hope is in the next three weeks, three or four weeks, you're going to know what the first half of the book is all about. It's, it's not hard. It's just hard to find the time and the solitude to be able to just read through the letter really quick, whether you understand it or not, just so you kind of get the flow. And I still agree with Peter. Sometimes Paul's hard to understand. So Acts chapter 20, first three verses. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent the disciples, and after encouraging them, he sent, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions up there and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece over there. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, which is north of Israel, Right? Right where, you know, just above any just below Antioch over here. As he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So he's gonna walk and camel ride or horse ride or sheep ride or whatever it is you do, you know, all the way up Greece to Macedonia and take off from there. So there we're done with Acts. <coughs> so for those three months, he writes this letter to the Romans. <coughs> so I'm not going to read it to you. I hope you had a chance to do that. Um, and I want to encourage you, if anything, read the red stuff in the study guide, which basically says, read Romans 1 through 3. At least you'll be where we're at. If you get a chance to look at the study guide, that's great. But the, the scripture is certainly more important than what I've, than what I've got to read. Um, so if we look at the study guide, um, Paul wants to visit Spain. So if, if you're looking at Greece being over here along this wall, Italy is beyond the water, right? You go over the water and you're in Italy. Everybody, everybody with me ge geographically? Okay. And that's where Rome is, right? And then if you go up to the top of Italy and a little bit left or go across the water again, you're in Spain, right? So hop Italy, hop Spain. He wants to visit Spain. Um, so he's going to write to the uh, Romans. He's hoping to visit them. But the Roman church, which is mostly Gentile, just like all the other assemblies that he's written to, um, he's, he's going to start chatting with them. But I think he wants to give them a foundation of what's going on. And that's Romans 1, 2, and 3. If you ever learned the Roman road as a, as a believer, 
you know that we do 3, 6, 5, 11. I think it's 11. Is it 11? What's the last one in the Romans? I think it's 11. I don't know. Maybe 10. Right? So but that, that's how the, Romans wrote, the Roman road works. It starts with Romans 3.23, for all its ends and fall short of the glory of God. Right? Um, and then we jump to 5.18, I believe. And I wouldn't even try to quote it because I'll mess it up. It's too late in the day. But the whole idea is you're a sinner. God saved sinners. No. Romans 3, then 6. The wages of sin is death. 5.18, uh, for God gave his son for us or something like that. And then over to 10 or 11, and uh, you know you can have eternal life through it. I mean, basically, it's the first half of the book of Romans or the letter to the Romans that, that we have used traditionally to teach people, you blow it. God fixed it. You've got an opportunity if you believe it. Something like that. Um, so there are folks who would say that we, we preach the cure, Christ, Messiah, before we make people understand that they're sick. The sickness of sin has affected us all from Adam. And Paul's going to go through that. He's going to say that the sin from one man, he said that in 2 Corinthians 3, has affected us all. And the righteousness or obedience of one man, Messiah Yeshua, has affected us all as well if we believe. So uh, Romans 1.5 is the first thing that I picked up on. Through whom Messiah we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. What, what, what in the world does that mean, the obedience of faith? What is it that in faith, Todd, you're supposed to be obedient to? We now walk by faith. Okay. So the doing that we do is done by the faith of what God has planted in us by writing it on our hearts. What did he write on our hearts? He wrote the Torah on our hearts. There it is. This guy who knows 2 Corinthians 3, right? So God has circumcised this man's heart, written his Torah on his heart, not on tablets of stone, in letters that kill, because all it does is show that you're a sinner, but rather on his heart. Moses said, it's not far away. It's in your mouth. It's in you. You have it. I've given you the Torah literally through the Spirit. And now, be obedient. That's the obedience of faith. There it is. Class is over. It's been really great. Thanks for coming. Um, and somebody was saying last week that there's going to be a greater fullness you know, in the world to come of the new covenant where it'll be written on our hearts to where no one has to teach anyone no Lord. Anymore. Yeah. But now we have the faith the written on our heart that helps us recognize. I mean, when we see it, we know, yes, that's God's word and that's the Torah and this over here is not. I want, I want you to hold that thought. Kind of. I want you to hold that thought. Good. No, it's, it's not wrong, but I, want, I think we can polish it better. And I think if you wait two weeks, when we get into Romans 7... Paul talks about that exact same thing. He basically says, hang on, I've got the Torah written on my heart. The things that I want to do, the Torah, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I find myself doing. What's up with that? Now, this is one of the most amazing believers in all of history. 
struggling with sin. Well, but there's no temptation that took him or you or me, but such is common to man. That's what happens to us. We're in this sinful flesh. And he talks about that in chapter 8 and makes it clear. Who can, who can save me from this? This is, this is horrible. This is not what I want to do. But thanks be to Messiah Yeshua, who's, who's granted us life. He's, he's helped us with that. But not necessarily right now. I mean, we're not tempted but beyond what we are able to bear. And with every temptation, God gives us a way of escape. That's not very comforting when you're struggling with sin, like I do. Right? Um, but what you just described is in the world to come. Which could be on Saturday. Which could be the set. You never know. Yeah. I mean, the bottom line is, right now, we struggle with this body. But when the Messiah returns, soon and in our days, amen? Amen. When he returns, we will all be changed. Well, not all of us. But the ones who are dead in Messiah will be raised incorruptible. And they will, will have that millennial reign in that body that you're talking about. So you don't have to worry about sin. And you will know Messiah. Not like reading about him or like reading about Charlton Heston, you know, and watching him in the movies, but actually meeting him face to face. Not Charlton Heston, but Messiah. Yes, sir. And I, I don't know if Paul is kind of going off of this or if this kind of is going off of Paul, but I mean, this is very similar to the concept of the Yetzer Hara and the Yetzer Tov in same Judaism. Thing. I mean, it's basically the same well, thing, right? Because the Yetzer, It's not basically the same thing. <coughs> it is the same thing. Well, the only reason I said basically is because they usually don't say the Yetzer Tov is the the Holy Spirit writing the Torah on your heart. They oh, no. just say that that's like the godliness inside of us sure. that desires to keep the Torah but is constantly at war with our bodies, which aren't wanting to do those things. And yet Paul says, you're sons of God, quoting the Psalms. Right. So there's there's some divine spirit yeah, yeah, or sure. spark in there that he's, yeah, he's acknowledged. Those, those concepts are just so similar, if not the same, exactly. that it's uh, there's, an, there's an amazing parallel there. Yeah. And I mean, the, the, some of the works of Judaism that speak about that defeating of the Yetzer Hara are so beneficial for believers too about like just the almost the tricks of the trade to to continue to avoid temptation and to continue to try to build into your habits you know those those things that keep you from the, the our weaknesses exactly right good stuff exactly right yes i think uh, i know that in, in my own walk a long time ago i struggled with taking that too far and almost feeling like the flesh is just completely evil. But that's what happened in the Reformation. In the Torah walk, I mean, and this is even during uh, my, you know, knowing the Lord. Yeah. Um, but then in the Torah walk, I've almost felt like um, you can almost find that your flesh is not evil, that you have things to do and you have ways yeah. of aligning yourself and that I believe we have three parts. You know, some, some people say two, but I believe we have body, spirit, and soul. And it's nice to know that all three can be good and can be working together, you know. Yeah. And that it's not just two are good and one is bad, or yeah, right. one is good and two are bad, you know. Yeah, yeah that's an excellent point. It is an excellent point. That's, that's usually the, the, sort of the, uh, the function of the blessings, right? Is to elevate the things that are mundane. You know, our body gets hungry. 
So you could call that the Yetzirahara, you know, but like that you can elevate that to a, a gratefulness to God for the bounty that he's provided you and, and eat with the, the fellowship of believers we, and we have that be a glorifying it, thing. Make it like a temple experience. Exactly. And exactly. A, so that's an excellent time. point to remind yeah. ourselves of. It's not necessarily good and evil. It's worldly or fleshly yeah. versus it's the common, common God. versus holy. But that's kind of our responsibility is to elevate those things that's that are exactly common right. to a state of holiness. And, and, and there... If you think about it as a drop of ink in water, blue ink goes into water, right? So the more I do an elevation of common things to make them set apart, not necessarily temple set apart, but just set apart. We're just going to have a beer together, but we're going to bless God for providing the beer and the barley and the hops and all the stuff that makes it come together, you know? who creates all things by, who by his word creates all things, right? We're gonna do that. And now it's, it's not just a common thing like a guy out in the street who's drinking a beer, but we're doing a little bit of worship together. And, and that drop, I think of it as that drop of ink in the water is spreading in, well now the water's not clear, it's sorta of, sort of light blue. And when another meal comes apart, up, uh, upon us or an opportunity to, to minister and work together, or an opportunity to study together, or an opportunity to, to help a, another family member, uh, I'm just putting more drops of water in there and my life becomes more and more like him. It's, it's a wonderful thing. You know, uh, this, this concept that the flesh is bad is what Catholicism fell into. Big time. And that's why the priests would be flagellating themselves and hitting themselves with the whips and, and, and so forth because the flesh is bad. It kind of overlooks the, the idea that after God made the flesh, he said it was not only good, but it was very good. So it's not that the flesh is bad. It's that we do bad things with it or it causes us to do things that are bad. Three things cause us to do sin. What are they? The flesh draws us through its cravings to do to practice sin. What's the other one? Evil inclination. I would say the same thing. Yeah. Same thing. Right? Okay. Um, but we could say the evil inclination would be the devil. Okay. Right? There are spiritual forces that are, are drawing us away. That could be the evil inclination, but I think I I put that more on the flesh, right? So yeah, you've got the, the devil or the principalities and powers that are uh, actually in charge Tempters. of this world, right? Other and then, people's flesh. I'm sorry? Other people's flesh. Uh, let's call flesh it the world. Let's call it the world, right, yeah. yeah. Exactly right, so these three pull us away, and what is it that can bring us back and keep us away from that, aside from living like a hermit? Is elevating elevating the common stuff. And using the blessings. Yeah, I think for godliness. There's the, the great stories of people like the uh, Baal Shem Tov who would specifically seek out you know, pagan people and ask them out to eat or something like that so that he could do a blessing with them before they ate. You know, And he would he'd sometimes, somebody would say, like, you know, come up to him and, and they would ask him for something and he would be like, I'll absolutely do that. You know, I'll, I'll provide a steak dinner for that, no problem. 
but you just have to bless God with me beforehand. And, he, and it, the whole, that was the whole purpose. Yeah. Is it's like, this might be the only time this guy ever blesses God or, or eats in, in, a, uh, in, a, in a community of people that are all right. worshiping right. God, but uh, that's fine. You know, exactly. we'll, we'll make that happen. Amen. It's interesting you talk about how the Catholics are... Let's say were. I don't, I don't were. think they, they do that quite as much. Anymore. Okay, we'll say Christians. <laughs> It's always the thought of you should constantly be repenting for your sins, yeah. that you are constantly just full of sin. And I found a really interesting um, comparison to that whenever I started studying about Torah and Judaism, mm-hmm. is that there are 613 commandments mm-hmm. in which you can please God. Amen. And I don't really feel like in the church that I was brought up in, and maybe the other churches that are different, but in the church I was brought up in, you were constantly looking at how you were doing things incorrectly, Correct. and not focusing on how you could please God. It was just about you need to be you need to be a light to the world and witness to others. Right. But also, you're, you're a sinner. If you're not doing that, then right, you're sinning. Because if you're not listening to gospel music and right. singing God's praise and studying the Bible, you must be sinning and not living a godly life. Yeah. If you're doing anything other than that, and I thought it was really interesting that. The most 613 commandments gives you something to do. Gives you something to do. So by me going and helping a neighbor, or by taking somebody who's giving them a dollar because they need some groceries, like I am contributing to God's wealth. Absolutely. Not only that, I think that is spreading the gospel. I think Greg Upham, the way he puts it, is uh, um, go ye therefore out into all the world and share the gospel. <clears throat> And if you have to say something, but otherwise, you know, keep your mouth shut. You know, um, I, I'm with you 100. percent And one of the things that you know, like you, and not to say that you should not be repenting for your sins. Oh, we have we certainly love that. We certainly but, yeah, I'm with you. Um, but one of the things that I remember is, uh, is is not only that, but that as as we study the Torah each year, I realize that if you break one of the commandments. The Torah tells you how to fix it. Mm-hmm. Well, I busted your lawnmower that I borrowed. Oops. Well, oops doesn't cut it. Oh, you 10%. I, I, yeah, <laughs> I got to fix it. And, you know, two fists on top or whatever it may be. And, and we get it there. Joshua Martin and the other Martin family are uh, at home uh, having, uh, just got, having just gotten home. And uh, he's greeted you all. Um, but, yeah, um, a lot of differences there. And the whole difference of how do I share the gospel? Maybe I share the gospel by living it. And what is that good news? That the guy you're talking to is not the guy who was here uh, 40 some odd years ago, 30, 40, you could call it 40, call it 40. So, all right, Romans chapter one. I found your analogy in the scripture. It says the kingdom of heaven is like blue ink dripped into water. <laughs> it spreads throughout the whole thing. <laughs> Thank you. The leaven. And the Watch out for that leaven, buddy. Watch out for that leaven. This is good leaven, though. Yes, amen. amen. All right, so Romans chapter 1, Paul's primary argument is if you're a Gentile, then God has already revealed himself to you, and you are without excuse. And if you're a Jew, it's even worse because he not only revealed himself through what the, 
the church today would call general revelation, but he revealed himself through specific revelation and handed you the Torah, made all kinds of noise on top of the mountain, and actually had lunch with you. So let's hold the Jews for a second and talk about the Gentiles. Since I find myself, well, surrounded by Gentiles, which I'm fine with. So we just had an eclipse, pretty amazing. This week, uh, we have uh, three occlusions happening, Saturn, Mars, and Mercury. What does that mean? That means that the, in the same way that the, the moon got in the <coughs> way of the sun, mm -hmm. it is going to actually get in the way of those three planets this week. In fact, mm. right before Rosh Hashanah. <laughs> the sun's going to cover. The moon's going to cover. Oh, it's a lunar okay. occlusion. Okay. Correct. So there is an order. Probably to explains why we've been having all these earthquakes. Yeah, and, and now another hurricane. And, and another one, Maria's coming, you know, and that kind of deal. So I, I, I guess the question really is is that enough? Is, is the order of the heavens. Are the sun, the moon, and the stars that, according to the book of Breshit in Genesis, are going to be signs and uh, wonders? Are, are they enough for the Gentile to know that there is a God? Or, since it seems that most of science is denying that, by the way, that's scientists now. Most all of the inventions that we all take for granted now, and the guys that we lift up like Pascal in mathematics and so forth, were amazingly strong believers in Messiah Yeshua. And it was the Bible that helped them to understand these truths. Galileo, you know, same thing. He's Italian, by the way. So, is it good enough? I also want to make some. Is it good enough? Or do you, do you think that most Gentiles should get a buy? Because, I mean, there is, there is a design, but... Does that really beg a designer? Paul says they're without excuse. Yeah. And you're with Paul. Yeah. Easy bet. I mean, for Yeshua, then that broad road that leads to destruction mm -hmm. just got narrow. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Right. <laughs> right. Okay. It just seems like there's a difference between like recognition and belief. You know, like a lot of people, I was standing in a big crowd uptown Charlotte watching that eclipse. And there was a lot of people that were recognizing how unique it was and okay. recognizing it's kind of cool and everything, but there's just this, they're not taking it that next step, you know? It's its almost like that, that uh, adage that my mother-in-law loves to say, people do what they want to do. It's like people kind of choose to only take their mind far enough to go, oh, that's cool, but not to the point where it's like, Wait, should my life be different because, like, there's a God that made all these beautiful things? You know what I mean? Like, I think people are genuinely uh, distracted by by everything that's going on without really taking a, a, a moment to think about those kinds exactly, of things. Exactly, exactly right. Um, and it's just like because you're it living. is it is sort of a natural progression, right? Like, so the heavens declare the glory of God. So wait a second! Wait a second! I'm about to quote that. Oh, I'm sorry. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. This right. is Psalm 19. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. 
There is no speech. There are no words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out to all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. And like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens. Its circuit to the end of them. There is nothing hidden from its heat. The law or Torah of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired they, than they are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. And it goes on. But he starts with the heavens. And by yeah. the way, Brock says, hey, and we should see him, I think, in two days at the Tashlik service. Yeah. Good to see him. Oh, cool. Well, and that, that, that particular psalm has a cool progression to it because the, the first Three, inkling four. or something is that the heavens, right? And it's like what you're seeing, you're kind of like starting to think through your, in your mind, like, wait, that, I mean, that couldn't have just been by accident. Like, that's so incredible. And then, of course, we have definitely no excuse now with Google and, and all of all of science and all of history being right, at our fingertips. Right, right. And but then what it ends up to is the actual enlightening starts happening once you find Torah. Correct. That begins layering what you think you see and what and who you think God is with the truth. Exactly. But the thing that should get you to that point, the thing that should get you to ask those questions that would get you there, is God's handiwork. And unfortunately, I think we just get, um, it's almost like we're a bit desensitized because of entertainment, right? Like, mm -hmm. I mean, how, how much more, like, uh, are, are, do movies just take something above and beyond, right? It's like, oh, the sunrise isn't good enough anymore. Like, we're going to, there's like two suns on this new planet, and there's, new, you know what I mean? Like, it's, everything's exaggerated, and so then the absolutely unbelievable, incredible things that are right before our eyes are almost, like, lessened That's because right. of all that other stuff. Even at the Apple uh, event that they just had, this guy is looking at a just an empty table through his iPhone. And what do they call it? Uh, an augmented, augmented, reality. augmented reality. He's he's got a little world that has just been quote unquote created on this table. So the fact that God created everything around us, like you said, is just minimized. So like you know what what's what's the big deal? We're all yeah. just part of the matrix. If we'd wake up, we'd realize this reality is not reality. You know, something weird like that. I think you kind of hit on a point there because I think if we go back, say, 117 years or just 15 years shy of the turn of the century, mm -hmm. it was like 1885 or 1890 was when the World's Fair time was happening Correct. in Chicago. And there were a lot of things that were being introduced yeah. that the world, had, the world had never seen before. I kind of think back... When you said that about the whole, like, we have the media and things that desensitize us. If you think about it, we, they saw a, uh, a lunar, solar eclipse, lunar eclipse, lunar eclipse, uh, what we just had. I can almost hear the <gasps> gas in the air when it happens, like, like a crowd from those times where they're completely amazed that this marvelous thing is happening. There's no question. Yeah, and, and the ones that are by themselves are shocked that... All the animals are quiet. Yeah. And it got dark on the whole planet. Yeah. And now it's just meh. 
Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's why Abraham, and going back to uh, the, the <coughs> Hall of Faith in Hebrews, yeah. you know, it starts with Abraham because Abraham is just one of the most incredible examples of what true faith looks like. Because if you if you even follow the if, if if you don't even follow the tradition that he was surrounded by idolatry and you know his dad was an idol had owned an idol shop and all that, you still have to think like this guy was absolutely on his own, and still came to a saving faith that is an example for every generation since like it's possible is basically i think the point of reiterating how what happened with abraham it's like hey he could do it anyone could do it he's the example follow how much faith he had by just what he saw and then continue it and keep going you know so you know you bring up a good point and it's it's sort of a rabbit trail but i think it's cool um hebrews says that uh Actually, the master says that Abraham saw Yeshua's day. He, he saw what was going to happen. So do you think he saw him looking at Nathaniel under the tree? Or do you think he saw him arguing with the Sadducees and the Pharisees in the temple? What day? Coronation of the king. So, times. No, no, so, so do you think he saw when he comes back the second time? I think that too. Most people think he saw him maybe on the cross. Most people think That's maybe he saw him teaching or the, something the like days that. of Yeshua's. What Could I, be. would have been not like a specific time, but the days and what was going on. But in the, the, in the, but the term the day is an Old Testament. I beg your pardon, a Tanakhian phrase. The day, because the, the day would not the, the day that's most significant. Although uh, it's significant, is that the most significant day is not the day he was crucified. It's the day he rose. Well, which one? Which time? We well, only rose from the dead once. Right. Okay. Well, he, he returned when he returned, once, but he was going to return a second time, and I would say that would be. And that's, that's what the Tanakh Although says. it was necessary for him to raise from the dead Absolutely. I mean, for first, our sins. No question. Then but the day that you're talking about, <clears throat> when he comes back, that's right. what the Tanakh says is the day. In the day of the Lord. Well, that, that's not when he was here the first time. That's, that's the second time. Which is why most of the sages get a little confused, the sages of Israel, with you know when Messiah comes. Singular. When he comes that time not when he comes back. That doesn't work if your focus is only on the Lord, right? Well, for them, it'll be one time. That's correct. <laughs> That's correct. All right. Um, well, since he was there from the very beginning. Thank you, Joshua. I think you're right. And since he was there from the very beginning, and that it was the sixth day that man was created with free choice whether to choose to worship God or not. Or simply obey. Right. That's whenever he was... Don King. Okay. You're getting a little heavy for me, but I, you know, I, I don't disagree, but right. you know, I got I got a moose. Because you can choose to not obey or not follow. Well, God. you 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 call it worship right. at first, which I don't disagree with. But you're really talking about obedience. Right. Which goes back to how do we stop from sinning? We all said, well, you know, make the common holy, pray, bless God, do things, acts of kindness, and so forth. 
But worship truly is obedience to God. So back to the Torah and keeping the 613 commandments. That day, the man who represented us all chose not to obey. Or actually, we could even rephrase it and say, he chose to obey another. Whether it was himself or his wife or the Satan, either way, he did not obey God. He chose not to obey God. And there was a time he didn't, but at first he did proclaim that he was God, right? Would Adam not have said that there is God? Oh, no question. He was, right. you know, he was walking with God. Um, and therefore proclaimed that he was a creator of you. Yeah, I think you've got to stretch a little bit um, to take it there. I mean, I think ultimately that's the, that's the effect of their sin, for sure. And Scott, I beg your pardon, I... I it said J. Martin, so I just assumed it was J. Martin who was uh, typing there. Now I see who's in charge of the computer. Um, so it's excellent comments. Let's uh, jump back to Romans to make sure we stay on track because we're supposed to be talking about the first three chapters of Romans. Uh, and we're just still in Romans 1. But I bring your uh, attention to verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That, to me, that sounds like today. But how is the wrath of God revealed against ungodliness? Unless, like some of the more charismatic or uh, Pentecostal-type preachers, um, AIDS would be considered the wrath of God. It's a consequence of your sin. Man should not lie with man. You have AIDS. wonder how that happened. You're defiling your body with drugs. You got it from a needle. wonder how that happened. Paul, I believe, is making it clear um, that that may be the wrath of God. Could be. He goes on. For what can be known about God is plain to them. That would be us. It's plain. Like you were saying. Well, wait, so why, why would he say them if he's writing to Gentiles? Uh, he clearly has divided now as he's writing to this Gentile community. He's, he is talking about the, the righteous and the unrighteous, okay, the ungodly, right, for right. sure. Okay. So, Are you saying because he says the Jew first and also to the Greek that because he says them... Well, the, the them, he clearly has identified ahead of time as being the, the unrighteous. Yeah, the, the unrighteous. What do you accept? Us? It, it, I think Jews? what he's talking about, well. No, he's not talking about Gen Jew and Gentile at this point. No. He's just talking about general men, the unrighteous men, right? And he doesn't care whether they're, they're Jews or not. So he's just going through. If you don't think there's a God or you don't think it matters what you do, you're not paying attention because God has made it plain. God has shown it to them. That's a direct quote. For his invisible attributes, that's the stuff you can't see, for those of you who live in Gastonia, namely his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. What is it that the unrighteous or the ungodly deny vehemently? Creation. The creation. Yeah. It's evolution that happened by chance. And we're by... six million years in instead of 6,000 years. Where this bone that's about this big. It's 12 is, billion years old. That's exactly right. We're 40,000 years old. 
And here's a picture of what it came from, which we made out whole cloth from this. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Which our computers have told yeah, us right. what it looks like. Which we helped create with Steven Spielberg. There, there it is. Right. So verse 20 of chapter 1, they are without excuse. So let me just pause there. And well, let me, let me finish Paul's, Paul's thought. Paul says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to, to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them over to their lusts, in the lusts of their heart, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Let's so, think about back to when the Jews were from in the wilderness mm -hmm. and they created the calf. Mm -hmm. They knew God and God had shown them many signs. Yeah, a lot more than the general revelation. Here you get specific revelation. He's going to get to them later, but you bet. Foolish hearts were darkened, claimed yeah. to be wise. They became yeah. fools. Like, Started worshiping the creed, the creature instead of the creator. And specifically mentioning giving them over to the lusts of, yeah. their, of their own passions and everything, which is exactly that scenario with the balloon cap. That's exactly right. So Looking for something tangible and intangible. Yeah. Scary. So let's let's just yeah. let's let's just be real here and I'm kind of just vote out loud if you feel. Republican. E equal to the task. Let's. Do you believe that? I mean, seriously, Gregory, do you believe that? That. Just looking at creation. Leaves men without excuse. That there's enough in the created world. That men are without excuse. Yes. You believe that? Yes. Alex, you believe that? Or you think, eh, nah, it's a little over the top. You can be honest. It's okay. I won't think less of you, you know, after you walk out. <laughs> um, it, it depends to what extent. Um, are they with that excuse? Are they with that excuse to acknowledge that there was a creator? That seems to be the only thing he's going for right okay. now. Just that, that there is a God. That there is a God. Right. I okay. look at the creation. I got to know there's a creator. There's got to be an intelligent design, designer. Correct. Okay, I can Because I see intelligent design. Certainly. Okay. So, Todd, I'm going to put it a different way for you. If I go uptown and Scott's building, uh, uh, Brock, by the way, is voting yes from Florida. That's that's nice. Um, I, Scott tells me about this this building he lives in. He says it's the building lives in, the works in. He says it's the building with the handle on the top. So I'm driving around the 277 loop, and sure enough. There's a building that looks like it's got a handle on the top. Oh, yeah. Right? Mm. Now, when you see that building, is there even the slightest thought in your mind or in anybody you know that that building just happened by <laughs> the chance forming of atoms? I'm sure that. A mistake happened. of nature. It, I mean, no. I mean, when we put it that way, doesn't it sound amazingly foolish? Does the tornado go through the junkyard and build a 747? Exactly. I mean, 
I, I don't. I'm, I'm trying really not to 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 force the argument or, or to set up a straw man. But if you can look at a skyscraper and know there had to be some guy with a whole set of blueprints, and by the way, a whole bunch of guys who built that sucker, why would we not say that when we look at a fig tree that I planted from a pit and is now giving me fruit that I have every morning at breakfast? How can we not say that? Sounds like, to me, we are basically second class in terms of faith. Because it takes a whole lot more faith to believe that. You, you've got a good point. And I think uh, G.K. Chesterton says that, right? Yeah. You know, you, you just, yeah, that's exactly right. You, I love that. You've got to have more faith in me. You, you know, I, my faith is wimpy. Oh, yeah. You, oh, you don't believe in God? That's <laughs> a lot of faith. Yeah. <laughs> takes oh, a lot yeah. of faith to not believe in over, God. Over wow. the top there. Over yeah. the top. I see it hard to live in this world and say, prove to me there's not a God. How do you do that? With what? Yeah. It's well, you can never prove a negative. Everything around you. can never prove a negative, but you should be able to prove a positive. Right. It's not possible to prove a negative. Right. So uh, Scott's reminded me of, um, I can't remember the author there, uh, that English guy. Scott, tell me who wrote that thing. Um, but he writes about the banana and the Coke can. Have you guys heard that one? Mm -hmm. yeah. And he, he talks about uh, his theory of how the Coke can came to be. The Coke can came to be because millions of years ago there was molten tin floating around in the universe and it happened simply by chance and it took millions of years to form itself into the shape of a coke can and a brown bubbly liquid that was just primordial ooze on top of some molten rock happened to go inside the can and it sealed itself and then red and white paint happened to be swirling around and just through a freak of circumstance happened to fall on this metal and it ended up saying Coca-Cola patented, you know, 1973. Hallelujah. Yeah, right? Yeah. Right? So it was Ray Comfort. It was Ray Comfort. Uh, so he, he says, yeah, he says, that just sounds so ridiculous. Because you look at the Coke can and you know it couldn't happen that way. He pulls out a banana. <laughs> and he goes, you think the Coke can's amazing? He says, look at this. This is, this has, this has, this is food inside. And it has a wrapper that actually tells you how, how good the contents are. Green, too soon. Yellow, just right. Black, a little too late. And it has a flip top, just like the Coke can. But the wrapper splits itself perfectly to go over the human hand. And it fits perfectly in the human hand. And it's tilted towards your mouth. He says, it gets better than that. It not only tastes good, but when you're done with it, the wrapper can be used to make more. It turns into soil that's perfect for growing more of these wrappers with food inside. It's it's an amazing thing. So, my, that's very cool. Isn't it great? Like yeah. yeah, he's uh, is great comfort. He's, he's uh, it's just his perspective that I described the bananas. Did the wrapper revolve around our hand or our hand around the wrapper? Yeah. Woo. Yeah. Is All right. What came first, chicken or the egg? Only in order to hold bananas. That's right. That's right. That's, that's okay. Deep, so. Yeah. <laughs> that's so. Deep.
That's deep. So chapter two, um, Paul starts to, to jump into here um, talking more about God and how if, if you think that you're getting away with this and just ignoring God and therefore there won't be any wrath or he won't care or there won't be any um, consequences to that, you know, how, how could you possibly think that you will escape the judgment of God? Right? He will render to each one according to his works, which folks in the visible church today don't like to hear, but you're back to the Torah and keeping his commandments, and you're back, as you said, to the garden where we're talking about nothing but obedience. What was Adam's sin? He disobeyed. God said, don't do this. He did it. You can put it any way you want, but it's just disobedience, right? Okay. The uh, that the verse a couple of verses before that, in yeah. Four, two, four, uh, chapter two, verse four. Yeah. Man, I thought that was pretty powerful as a lesson for Ogul, because sometimes I think people almost use the fact that God's wrath hasn't been poured out in their life or something like that as a bit of an excuse to keep going. Sure, and, and your college professors are like that when they're denying God and saying, right. if God exists, I'm going to drop this piece of chalk, and if he exists, he'll stop it from hitting the floor. It doesn't work like that. That's just right. testing God. But like th- this, this just flips that entirely on its head and says, oh, no, no, no. You haven't had, like, the full weight of the wrath of God on you because of how kind he is to you. And his kindness has meant for you to go and repent. You should feel so bad that you are receiving kindness, <laughs> even though you were you were an idiot, that it should lead you to repentance. Amen. And that is, that is such a cool way of thinking about that. That has really changed my You've got a cool part in four, but you've got scariness in five. Because exactly. in the very next verse, he's like, because of your heart and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Hmm. So if a logical argument that he created this doesn't work, then let's appeal to your senses and say, just because you haven't felt the wrath of God doesn't mean that he doesn't have wrath for you. He's being patient, so you will acknowledge him because he is a loving God. Yeah. And, oh, by the way, your account is full up. So come the day when you get paid, the wages of sin is death. Amazing, yeah. I've never heard it put that way. Well, that's that's why Romans is so cool. Seeing seeing mercy and seeing kindness, because I think it is not our nature to seek repentance in times of mercy or in times of like receiving a gift and thinking, I shall repent at this point. It's usually when things are going bad that you think, oh, I've been doing something wrong, or it's time for me to... Ask God for help. Wait till your daughter recognizes. She's old enough and she recognizes that she messed up and she messed up big time. And she knows because your wife has told her, when daddy gets home, he will deal with you. And the rest of the day, she is beside herself. And you come in the door and you listen to what happened and you look at her and you tell her, you deserve to be punished, don't you? I love you. 
And if this feeling you have right now will make you understand that you need to obey your mother and I, then I'm good with that. You're going to do that. That's going to happen in your life. And praise God, when it does, and you don't have to spank them, because they've mentally figured out it is better to obey. It is better to be obedient than not. It's got to be a mental ascent. All right. There's no punishment. Most punishments will not cause them to change their behavior. It's just that's just a punishment. That's just well, a, it, a slight it, pain. it should. It well, should over time. So, but I think where you well, if you, spoil, if you spare the rod, you will spoil the child. That's sure. a fact. But I think what you're getting at is you're giving them the opportunity to think. Yes through and recognize what the issue is. Yeah, that is one of the most pliable times. That, and right after you spank them, when you make it clear, I wish you had not forced me to do that through your disobedience. Or like Gregory was saying, is when, at the times when you don't actually deserve anything, when you were living in total sin, and then out of nowhere, something good happens, yeah. which causes you to think like, why did this just happen to me? I did all these crummy things and and hopefully would cause you to realize. Gentlemen, I just want you to, I want you to be clear, sitting right here, right now. You heard it from me right now. That should be every day. Because I don't care how good you're doing. I don't care how many commandments you're keeping. The fact that you get any blessing in your life, you should be on your knees thanking God every single day. It is amazing and I can tell you that when you get to be my age it's just overwhelming as you look back at, at the, the wonder and grace of God alright so verse 12 in chapter 2 we, we start to pick up uh, yeah Scott says uh, we need to be cognizant of the difference between punishment and discipline right we can be disciplined without necessarily being punished punishment you know, it should bring about a result, but the discipline is, is what needs to, to be generated there. All who have sinned without the Torah will also perish without the Torah, and all who have sinned under the Torah will be judged by the Torah. Now he's starting to split the unrighteous into the Gentile and Jew scenario, or the non-Jew and the Jew. For it's not the hearers of the Torah who are righteous before God, but the doers of the Torah who will be justified, the ones who are obedient. For when non-Jews who do not have the Torah by nature do what the Torah requires, they are a Torah to themselves, even though they don't have the Torah. They show that the work of the Torah is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day, when according to his gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Messiah Yeshua. When he separates the sheep from the goats, and every thought and intent of our heart is going to be laid bare and open where everybody can see, then it will come to pass. So then he goes into the Jewish side of it, um, and circumcision, and, and so forth. So he seems to start to slam the Jew, and make it seem like, you know, circumcision is not going to help here, guys. So that's why chapter 3 opens. What advantage has the Jew? Or what's the value of circumcision? 
and he's he's big on it. He thinks it's great. Comments on that? Is something that you can glorify in obedience when you are in the world to come. That I heard a comment by Rabbi Gordon on Chabad, which was, "What if the only Torah you have in the world to come is the Torah that you study here, and therefore all the revelations that you get there and all the glory that you will receive there is from what you've put in." from what you've done here. And so, what you've done here, risk me love, the glory will be revealed there to you of, hey, I believe that was true, God, so we did that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The, way the, uh, the way the sages put it, the world to come is like a large banquet hall. And this world is like the foyer. And while you're waiting to go into the banquet hall, while you're in that foyer, is the only time that you have to keep the mitzvot. Because you cannot keep them once you get into the banquet hall. So you gotta do whatever you can while you have this time in this present world. Because once you pass on, there's no more keeping mitzvot. So chapter two at the end here looks like he's just spelling out or um, acknowledging the internal sin. He's saying you do everything outwardly, yet internally you do not keep these. Right. So he's just basically paraphrasing what Yeshua already taught. With regards to, you know, I mean, it's not um, just a sin to lust after, right. but to internally plan it out in your head. Sure, sure. Um, so I think that's what he's basically paraphrasing here. You know, the, the whole idea that if you know it, you, you have, you're just without excuse. Yeah. Without excuse. The one who is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. That verse 29 in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 that we studied last week, that's it right there. Like, that's, that's like in conclusion then. there it is yeah. the new yeah. covenant means your heart's been circumcised and the Torah is written internally by the spirit and now you have this desire to be obedient whereas right now you may not have the desire to be obedient in fact he's going to go on later and say you don't even have the ability to understand the Torah unless God has worked in your heart so. I like how uh, it starts out with or circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. So it starts out saying circumcision is important, <laughs> is what I'm seeing. This whole explanation after that, I think people say he mentions circumcision and then he shows you that circumcision isn't needed. But I think it starts out saying circumcision is of value. Yeah, well, sure. But and let's, you know, but let's and look at the spiritual says, dynamic. If you break the Torah, then your circumcision becomes uncircumcision because you can't be circumcised in your heart if you're breaking the Torah all the time. I mean, it, it's like the stuff that you only hear in, in some of the Jewish uh, uh, Gentile churches, right? Well, that's what I'm thinking of is yeah, the... Yeah, be the fruit inspector and say, you know, if you're saved, 
you, your desire for the sinful stuff is should fade, and your desire to obey God. I mean, the idea that I would actually want to spend my free time studying the Bible. You you got to be nuts. We're different. I'm leaning towards different right. Or have now. an agenda. Or have an agenda. Yeah. yeah. It makes you rich, doesn't it? Yeah. All right. Uh, verse 9 and this is just nasty business verse 19 319 we know that whatever the Torah says it speaks to those who are under the Torah so that every mouth may be stopped how so we know what sin is and you can't justify yourself because God said don't do this and you're doing it so there's no justification. So it keeps you shut. And the whole world may be held accountable to God, for by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. You cannot be holy enough to have a place in the world to come. It can't be done. You know, sometimes people question what exactly was it that Yeshua was riding on the ground that made everyone shut their mouth and walk away. This looks like it. Very well, hit the nail on the head. It's possible. The uh, uh, some smarter people than me have said that uh, he was writing down the sins of the older men in the crowd, and that you know it was just like a word or two, and they they'd know what he was talking about. And it, like you said, whether it's specific sin or a generic sin, mm -hmm. it just it shuts you right up. So we, uh, we get to 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift to the redemption that is in Messiah Yeshua. That's 24. Most people don't read that, right? They stop at the end of 33 and they say, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's true. But they are justified by his grace as a gift. Now we're up to Ephesians chapter 2. Through the redemption that is in Messiah Yeshua. I don't think 23 should ever be quoted without 24. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Go back to his patience in the next verse there. Um, but it's just extraordinary all right so I think it's important that we recognize that Paul starts out with this premise if you're on the planet you don't have any excuse for not knowing that there's a God it's like sitting in a you know in a park looking at creation and not recognizing there's a creator. In the same way, you can't be on the city bus and look up at that building that's got the handle and realize if, there, if there's architecture I'm looking at, there had to be an architect. If there's a building, there must be a builder. If I see intelligent design, there must be an intelligent designer. It's got to be. He moves then to say, well, what about, what about the law? 
But for those who have the law, they're even more without excuse. Because the Torah teaches you what sin is. And that you should know what God has asked you to do and not to do. So then he gets into the whole Jew, not John Jew. They're a law. They're not a law. They, they're better than you because they know and they're doing it without even having the Torah. You have the Torah. You're still not doing it. He puts them all back together again at the end of chapter 3. It doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or a non-Jew. It doesn't matter. Everybody's sin. We're all in the same boat. doesn't matter who your parents are or your parents' parents or where they were from or how long it took them to get here and whether or not they were illegal aliens, legal aliens, went through Ellis Island. It doesn't matter. None of that matters. Bottom line. We all blew it. But God in his grace sent Messiah Yeshua. Bam, done. There it is. That's the message of the first three chapters of Romans. If you don't have anything, that's what you want to have as you're walking through this fairly detailed 16-chapter letter to the Roman assembly. 16 chapters to the Corinthian or the assembly in Corinth. I mean, he's 16 is you know, where, uh, where the monk decided we should have some chapter breaks here, but um, it's good stuff. It's, it's highly... Uh, theological and, uh, and yet eminently practical. So here's my first uh, review question. Is it possible to lay out the plan of salvation without using the book of Romans? What does Paul start with? The Torah? The heavens declare. So where can I go? Psalm 19 or Psalm 119, right? Because yeah. Psalm 119 is a large acrostic that gives, what, eight? Well, yeah, and the Torah verses. even describes heaven and earth as witnesses against you. There it is. So I don't need the apostolic scriptures to have a place in the world to come. If you think that's true, then Paul has no place in the world to come because there was no apostolic scriptures, nor were the 15 or 20,000 Orthodox Jews who came to Jerusalem for... for uh, Shavuot, that, that believed that Messiah Yeshua was, was the Messiah. They couldn't possibly have a place in the world to come and be saved if you had to have the apostolic scriptures. You don't have to have the apostolic scriptures. You certainly don't need a book of Romans. So we've already got the heavens throughout the Tanakh, Proverbs, Psalms, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 30. I mean, just, here's a kicker, right? So what's his, his second point? If you don't have the heavens, then you have the you must, you if you may have, what? The law? You've got the Torah. Yeah, the Torah. Right? So, you've either got the natural law, you know it's wrong to kill your mom. Or you've got the specific revelation of the Torah given to the Jews. So, you're without excuse now. So, law, general or specific, you're, you're host. So the heavens have got you, the law, the law naturally, nobody believes that beating children to death with a large club is appropriate to do. Nobody believes that. Everybody believes that's wrong. How could that possibly be? Because there's a natural law within us that's innate to the human species. So whether you've got that law or you've got the actual Torah, 
you know that you're doing something that's wrong. That's where that guilt comes from when we violate either of them. So Paul says, so we're, we're all hosts. That's it. We have no chance of a place in the world to come. We're all without excuse, and God's wrath resides on us. Just It's his patience. That's it. And the sinners in the, hang, in the hands of an angry God, that was his whole point, right? When he was, uh, he was preaching, Jonathan Edwards, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you know, he's preaching. He's actually reading it in a monotone. He's a terrible reader. He's reading that. You are without excuse. You hang by a thread over the fires of hell, and it is nothing but the forbearance of God that causes him to hold on and not drop you so that you burn eternally in hell. And it just so happened as he was reading this in England at the time, the building next door caught on fire. So now the people are hearing these words, they're looking to the window, and they see the flames, they're like, ah! And they're throwing themselves into the aisle. Save me, God! And everybody got saved. It was amazing. So. I call it a coincidence. Yeah, sure it was. Did you know there's, there's no Hebrew word for coincidence? Really? Yes, that's just a coincidence. Um, okay, so after, after, the, uh, after the law, natural or otherwise, where does he go? What's, what's, his final, what's his final take? That there is salvation through Messiah Yeshua. And doing things isn't going to do it. You just need to believe. And just the name Yeshua. Means? Yeah. Salvation. salvation. Bam. Throughout the Torah. That's exactly right. And in fact, throughout the, uh, the prayers, uh, that was one of the biggest reasons why Greg Upham started teaching us some of these prayers and, and the Hebrews so that we would say some of it or sing some of it in Hebrew. Because, like the, was it the last, uh, it's, it's right after the patriarch's blessing, the next one, was it God's might, I think? It's the bottom of the left-hand page, whatever that was. When you first start the Shema answer? Right. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, that whole thing ends, the last word is Yeshua, and you've got his yeah. name like three or four times in that one paragraph, you know? But of course, you'd never see that if you're just reading English, but it's his name. Yeah, so, all right. Then I, I do think it's really cool, too, that uh, towards the end of chapter three, that Paul does use the fact that God is one as sort of like a. Uh, an additional uh, Help me like, see that. piece of evidence. It, well, it's You're in, in 30? Uh, it's in, yeah, verse 30. Yeah, since God is one, you know, it's that that's such a good point because it's like, you know, so, you know, if there is this major distinction between Jew and Gentile, their expectation, okay. what they need to do, the way they need to live, the way they need to walk, like, that sounds like, like two different parents, you know? Help me understand. Like, the, I think... This is cool how he says, or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, right. of Gentiles also, since God is one. That's why he's also the God of the Gentiles. Therefore, if he is the God of the Gentiles, you know, and then he kind of goes through, who will be justified, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. So he's basically saying, like, that they're the same. Like, you, it's by faith that both are justified because it's because the same we're God. one in Messiah Yeshua. Why are we one in Messiah Yeshua? Because God is one. Nice. Did you pick up on the fact that Adonai Echad is actually in Romans, yet he's writing to non-Jews? Mm. Now, truth be told, the Roman assembly 
was made up of probably 80 to 90% Gentiles. Because there were some Jews, because the Jews are getting kicked out of the land. So you've got some Jews that had gone over and were part of that Roman assembly. They left Israel and went over to Rome. So he is writing to a small portion of Jews. But you've got to wonder, um, to say God is one, Adonai Echad, is a pretty fundamental piece of Judaism. Yeah. You know, which, of course, is the faith that he wants them to have. It's Judaism and faith in the Jewish Messiah, right? So yeah. that's good. Yeah, that was you, really good. It's hard to uh, to get that when you keep reading it in English, but he reiterates throughout these first three chapters the Lord Jesus Christ. But then to their to their ears, that would have sounded very Jewish. Yes, like it would have been Mashiach. Right, right, like right. that. That would have been reiterated Mashiach over and over. salvation. Yeah, there wouldn't have been a a bias towards the the words like Christ, you know, for instance, right. and right. how we immediately associate that with Christianity and Catholicism, as opposed to, I mean, this there is only one concept of the, existing at this time, and that's what the Jews understand to be Mashiach. That's exactly right, and in fact, the word Christos did not work as Christos is Christ in, in, in yeah. Greek, um, that did not work as a person. It was codified as such by the writings of the apostolic scriptures. That This word is like unheard of in, in Koine Greek prior to this. This is, they would not get it unless the concept of a Messiah was taught and understood that there was one who was anointed by God in a special way and was bringing salvation. Mm. It's amazing. Any other comments on Romans? Romans used to scare me to death. It's one of my favorite books now. Because you got to take it in little bites. Try and, you know. Read the first 11 chapters of Romans and comment uh, in three chapters. Uh, when it's, I mean, it's driving nuts. It's just too heavy. I remember as new Christian when I first I guess you'd say got the Holy Spirit sure. yeah. I don't remember why I was there but I was at uh, CMC in Uptown Charlotte mm -hmm. sitting waiting on a ride sitting in front of the hospital I didn't have a car or anything waiting on a ride Yeah. and this person was so late I read the whole entire book of Romans <laughs> and was just in awe and was just Amazing! It's just all opening up to sure, me. Sure, God's like, opened your eyes. This is incredible. It's amazing. Yeah. It's it's a cool book if you've got a circumcised heart. If you don't, I mean, it's just foolishness. It really is. It just doesn't make any sense. It just can't come no. together. So, um, remember in Second Corinthians three, um, Paul is uh, is is using some wordplay, right? And he is saying, well, Moses came down from the mountain, and he put on a veil. Well, Mo. There was letters written on stone. What are the letters written on stone? It's the Torah. Well, Moses is now veiled. Well, when we read Moses every week, what are we reading? We're reading the Torah. So what's really veiled? Is it the letters? Is it the man? It's the Torah. So the Torah has been veiled. So he deliberately blinded, partially, his own people so that we could be saved. That's Paul's argument. Don't, don't toss them under the bus. 
It's not entirely their fault, but God used them, and by blinding them, he says, even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart, which God put there, until the fullness of the non-Jews who are coming in is there. And then he'll lift the veil. And thus, all Israel shall be saved. That's, man, that is amazing that God not only was patient with me while I was sinning, but was patient enough ahead of time to hold back his people. Because that's what, that's what Greg Upham was saying weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks ago. We had a little discussion where he said, you know, he could have ushered in the kingdom that day. Had they accepted him as the Messiah, that would have been it. The kingdom would have started. Then there was an argument about, well, he had to die. We know he had to die. But if they had believed, he was ready. The kingdom is at hand. I'm trying to lift the veil, guys. But they wouldn't. They would not. That's important. Yes, sir. The, the, because there are times when, like, we, we there, the veil is lifted for certain people, right? Like, we sure. know great testimonies of, of Jews that they, you know, I, I think it's uh, Rabbi Perlmutter that yeah. he came across the belief in Messiah Yeshua from reading the Rosh Hashanah uh, Machsor. That's know? right, yeah. So it could, it, anything could happen, but like it reminded me of a story, I think I heard it on Chabad, that uh, of this, this son and his dad, and the son kept asking the dad for like money to buy a new car. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, did you did you read that too? Was yeah. that on Chabad? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah I, mean, it's, and, I, I, I think it's famous, famous Midrash. Yeah, yeah. And, and he keeps asking his dad, and he keeps asking his dad, and his dad said, well, you know what? I'll give you the money for the car if you just read this book. And, uh, and the kid, it's a big book. And he's just like, oh, I don't want to read the book. I, you know, I, can't I just have the money? And anyway, hymns and haws for a long, long time. The, the end of the story is that long, you know, he, he never got around to reading the book. He goes out, he gets a job, he's out of the he's, house, all He's that. bitter against his dad. He's bitter against his dad because he never gave him what he really wanted. And, uh, and long after his dad has passed away and everything, he decides to just crack open the book, and there, towards the end of the book, is a check that would have been enough for a new car. And it was like, I, sometimes I feel that way about like that whole concept of the veil, that it's yeah. not like a mean thing, right? but it's like, it's like this desire from the Father to want you to dig for it, mm-hmm. to, to, to do something sure. for it. Sure. And, and sometimes it comes easier for, for some than others. I mean, we see that with the example of the, uh, the prodigal son, right? Like, one son feels like he works all the time, doesn't get what he wants, and the other one, you know, just goes off and does his own thing. Why it's but, but it's not up to us who gets what, right? right? But but all of us should be one desiring to do the will of the father. In this yeah. case, the will of the father was he wanted his son to read the book before he gave him the money. But I just I, I like to think of that concept in that way, where it is it's it's an act of love, that that whole veiling, and especially an act of love. That the us. Gentiles may come no question. as well, but, but even to his people, because it does happen for his people. Um, yeah, it does. And, and I, think, um, I think Jonathan and I were talking about that um, during, uh, during Onik two weeks ago? Yeah. Must have been two weeks yeah. ago, right? Um, a week and a half, whatever. Right. Um, how there, there may be Orthodox Jews in the past who knew 
the identity of the Messiah, who, who trusted in the Messiah, and that God would send his Messiah, and they believed it with perfect faith. That's what Rambam says. I believe with perfect faith that he will send his Messiah. And though he tarried, yet will I trust him. That sounds pretty cool. Now, what's the veil do in that case? Cover the identity? Obviously not the concept. He's got the Torah. He's got the concept. I need Mashiach. He will bring peace. He will bring the ultimate redemption, as the Jews said. Make the vocation of the dead. There, there he is. There you go. So the dead in Messiah, not the dead in Yeshua, the dead in Messiah will rise first. Second Corinthians chapter four. I'm going to say fifteen. Might be fourteen. I can quote it, but I think it's fifteen. Um, and then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them. Who? Those who were asleep or died in Messiah. And thus we shall be together with them in the air. Who? Are, it's the it's the one way ticket, first class to Jerusalem. I like it. Cool. Whew. Comments? Questions? This is going to happen on Saturday, right? Did we go to Jerusalem? Evidently, yeah. So you heard it here first. Um, Yitzhak says. Uh, it's not that. I'm just saying what I had heard. Oh, he's just quoting. Heard. He's quoting some other gentile. I haven't bought in. <laughs> Soon uh, in our days. Yeah. It. Uh, amen. Soon in our days. Not being here in the Antichrist standing yet. Mm. Declare himself to be God, but hey. Well, you know, you bring up a good point, Alex. Um, <laughs> uh, Scott and I were, were talking at that same oneg with Jonathan because mm -hmm. Jonathan had raised a. For those of you who don't know, Scott and I spent nearly seven solid years studying the end times and making charts and putting all stuff together to the point where my wife was completely disgusted with the topic and you know I, I decided you know we'd take 15 years off from that topic so um, but I think Jonathan's convinced us that uh, um, shortly after we finish this study um, which is not going to be like in a day or two because I mean, while we're clipping through Romans, we, st we still got the book of Revelation to go through, right? 22 chapters there. We've still got some really cool stuff in First and Second Peter. Hebrews is going to be great. And, you know, we're, gonna, we're not going to be able to read Hebrews in the English. I don't mean you have to read it in Hebrew, but I just want to make it clear that almost every English translation that we've looked at, uh, thanks to Rick Spurlock's study of Hebrews, you're, you're reading past tense when it's present tense. You're, you're reading... This has passed away and is done when that's not what the Greek says. Okay, So we'll be looking at that, and we're going to have to spend a little bit more detail because it may affect the Holocaust and how we're supposed to live. right? Um, but anyway, we'll, we will be uh, doing a study of the end times, and hopefully um, in the same way that we did the walls, uh, we'll be able to put together a couple of, uh, couple of walls and drawings and whatnot that will help us to piece together those things just to give you a, just a, a very, very quick uh, taste, um, what Alex was uh, talking about is the, uh, the concept of or theological principle of imminence. Uh, and there are many in the, in the church today that would teach of the imminent return of Messiah Yeshua. 
imminence by definition means nothing need happen prior to the occurrence. Meaning that, as they used to say in the Baptist church that I was in, he could come now. Is, I don't see you next Sunday. Yeah, yeah, right? I see you here, there, or in the air. Um, the fact of the matter is that imminence is not a principle taught in the scriptures. His coming is guaranteed. His coming is without question. But the word of God goes through great detail in what must happen before he comes. So we'll look at some of those things. And, you know, I, I just, I think it's shameful that much of the church, you know, when they hear about a war starting, oh, it must be that the Lord is coming back. He'll be, you know, because this war is starting. It's peace that brings him back, not war. It's peace that Israel makes with the covenant of death. It's talked about in Isaiah. But we'll look at all that stuff. Um, and we're not going to spend a year on that study. It's just kind of an overview so that everybody understands. All right. Well, let me... Uh, let me just, if I don't get to see, especially you, um, probably you uh, and you uh, on Thursday, uh, I just pray that God will grant each of you men um, a spectacular, profitable, and blessed year ahead, and that the year will be sweet like honey, nourishing like the apple, and that... Uh, who knows that he would send his Messiah soon in our days. Amen. 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 Thank you, gentlemen.